Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or physician and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome everybody to yet another episode of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. And as is the usual, I think you're going to enjoy this one. You're going to enjoy this one because I'm bringing another friend of ours behind the microphone to join me on the podcast today. Dr. Jason Tanuri, founder of Finger Lakes Dental Care. Jason's been a longtime friend. You've probably heard him on the show before. He is a wealth of knowledge and experience, and I think you're going to be the beneficiary of that. So brew another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. Get your pad and pen ready. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Dustports. And as I teased in the introduction, I'm joined by a friend of the family, literally. Dr. Jason Tanuri today uh, is going to be joining me on the show. He is the founder of Finger Lakes Dental Care, a very dynamic group practice in a wonderful area of the country. He has a wealth of experience and a lot of knowledge to share, and he's a good friend of ours. I really appreciate his time today. Jason, thanks so much for joining me on the Friday. Thanks for having me, Perrin. Um, I'm excited to be here and um, might as well just get this uh, get this off my chest here. When I first heard you in the intro, I was thinking to myself, what, what's wrong with Perrin? He sounds really slow and sluggish today. And then I came to the realization that as I listen to you every week religiously, I listen to you at one and a half speed. And uh, when you're just sounding at normal speed, I'm like, okay, this is what he normally sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) So so I'm not going to ask if on a normal uh, listening of the show, if I sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks or anything like that, but this is, this is Perrin's pace. This is the normal Perrin, right? I mean, uh, what what you got is uh, is what we're going to have for today's interview, but for the audience, if y'all like digesting me at 2x or one and a half x or maybe some of you at uh, 0.75x you do you i'm gonna do me all right so (laughs) thanks for uh uh for joining me today i've been looking forward to this um and and as i kind of told you as we were getting things rolling these uh, interviews or i don't even want to call them interviews these conversations uh, with people I consider to be friends of mine and friends of ours are really a lot of fun for me, and they're massively beneficial to our our audience. Um, so, Jason, why don't we take it kind of from the top, and you know, let me let me let you lead in on just a little bit about your background, kind of what got you into dentistry in the first place, and then let's talk a little bit about Finger Lakes Dental Care because you've experienced some. Um, some frankly incredible growth since uh, since I first got to know you. You mind taking it from the top for us? Yeah, for sure. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. So um, went out to uh, University of Dayton, Ohio for college and uh, had no idea really what I wanted to do. And my advisors were suggesting everything from research to medicine. And finally, I ran into an advisor that said, you should shadow my dentist. So I did. And I'm like, okay, this is pretty cool. And um, because I had no clarity on really what I wanted to do, just decided to 
applied to dental school and um, got into Penn amongst some other schools and wanted to live in a big city. So I chose Penn. And even then, um, a year into it, I was like, I don't really know if this is what I want to do. Um, and then it just clicked. Um, I saw such an opportunity to use my hands. And it was it was kind of like arts and crafts for adults and um, pushed through and graduated, came back to upstate New York to the Finger Lakes area, did a residency up here in New York. And um, after graduation from that, uh, I was offered a really cool job in the middle of Finger Lakes, uh, took that. And after a couple of months, I realized uh, it wasn't for me. And I thought um, uh, I thought I could probably do this better on my own. So decided to start a practice from scratch. And, you know, here we are 20 years later um, talking to you. Yeah. Overnight success. It only takes two decades, right? I mean, (laughs) I I love that quote. I love that quote. I'm an overnight success, 10 years in the making. I I say that. (laughs) I think, I think we can all relate to that. And all of us have, uh, have taken a punch and we've all, uh, you know, had the fits of stops and starts along the way. So yeah, it's a, uh, some level of a mutual admiration society, but definitely a support group as well. So um, let, let's uh, let's talk about the business that you have built and the business you're building, because I feel like every time I, I get the opportunity to talk with you, whether it's in person at a conference or something or on the phone or even sometimes trading texts like we do, I feel like you've either added another offshoot of the business or acquired another practice or you've had like some you know, significant impact in the seemingly short period of time since the last time we spoke, you know, maybe take us from the onset about, you know, do, you know, being running it solo, having it be your business, then the thought process to go from, uh, from one to more than one, what was that initial phase like for our audience? Um, you know, in terms of, of adding additional locations. Yeah. So, um, it's hard to run a it's hard to run a dental practice right and uh, especially when you're full-time at the chair and uh you know we felt like we were doing it at a pretty good clip we had one practice for a long time 10 10 13, 10 12 13 years and then i just started to get complacent i just um dentistry certainly not easy but it it was getting to the point where i was like there's got to be something more to this and i felt like um i was getting bored i felt like i was getting complacent and I knew that I wanted to help more people, um, both patients and more importantly, team members. I just saw an opportunity to really provide um, an excellent place to work and maybe grow people uh, at a rate that they wouldn't otherwise grow if they were working somewhere else. So um, that just started the idea of, you know, a second location and bringing on associates and um you know, long story short, here we are. Um, we're blessed to have uh, seven locations. Uh, five of them are general dentistry practices, two are pedo ortho. Um, and we have um, some plans in place to continue to grow. But um, what gets me out of bed is just the the idea that we have a lot of employees and we're trying to collapse time for them in terms of um, becoming the best versions of themselves and growing them. And, and it's just been such a blessing to see someone come in as a, you know, a greeting coordinator or in our call center. And then after a couple of years of hard work and due diligence, end up being an office manager or um, running a team and, or being a supervisor in some capacity. And that's, that's what really gets me out of bed. I just love seeing that happen. And 
um, that's what keeps me motivated to keep doing this. Yeah. I mean, you, you've, uh, uh, you've reached the the point of escape velocity, so to speak. I mean, yours is not a, a hobby business and it's not a, a business without intention or purpose. And I mean, you mentioned centralization, the call center piece, that's a significant lift and shift in terms of the operations of the business. You're adding multi-specialty and I think you probably have the opportunity to add more specialty components to it. Um, and I, I think you're really you know, building off of a, a point of strength at this point. And that's, that's super cool to see. Um, and, and obviously I'm, I'm a big fan of not just what you're building, but the way you're building it and the intentionality that you have behind it. And I think that's, um, that's really, really cool to see how much, you know, presently, uh, you're still working both clinically and administrative or and in a leadership capacity. How, how does your, um, how does your time or, or your days break down between those schedules and, and wearing all the hats that you do right now? Yeah, so I, I had learned this the hard way, but I had to be super intentional with where my time is spent. So um, I have like an ideal week template that I use. Um, basically, I reverse engineered or backcasted. So I dedicate 50 hours a week to work. And um trying to be really intentional about where I'm going to be every 15 minutes of that 50 hours. Um, one day per week is now spent clinical. And at this point in my clinical career, it's really just finishing orthodontic cases. Um, my intention is to be completely away from the chair um, by uh, 2024. Now, I still love jumping in the operatory from an assistant perspective and growing my associates, helping them with surgeries and orthodontic cases and, and pretty much anything they need. And a lot of my week is spent doing that. But um, in terms of me being a, a clinician, currently one day a week. And then the other uh, the other four days a week or the other 42 hours a week is really spent mentoring associates, interviewing associates, developing relationships with um, with other businesses, uh, you know, dealing with some of the real estate that we have, um, banking relationships, consulting relationships. And I do a little bit of coaching uh, for our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Mark Costas out of his group. So that pretty much, um, sums up a, a 50 hour work week for me. Yeah. It, you've got a lot of time, um, that's outward focused, um, the way you, you talk about it. I mean, you obviously, um, are, are the founder and majority owner of the business and, but I mean, yours is, um, hearing you talk about that, it's, external relationships, uh, recruiting, it's business development. It's really that expansive mindset um, that is, I, I'm also sure that's very motivational to you um, and very rewarding and, and fulfilling at the same time. Um, but it, it takes it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of perseverance because everybody you not everybody you recruit is going to join your your team and not every um business owner you speak to is going to agree to sell his or her practice to you so i mean this is a um you know a, a discipline to be in and and you have to have a degree of resiliency if you're going to um you know 
continue to expand the business and also the productive capacity. Those are roles that we see in growing businesses, frankly, that, you know, fall to different people a lot of times. And you're really wearing a lot of super important hats at this stage of uh, of the, the business and, and certainly your leadership of it. Um, you did mention uh, associates. How many do you have in the business right now across seven locations? We have 11 general dentistry associates and um, four specialists. Wow. Okay. So that's a, that's a big team. How do you get them together in the same location frequently or, or consistently? Give us a, an inside look at maybe how often y'all assemble in the same room. When, when we talk about things like doctor development, skill development, mentorship, what's the, what is the look to that? Yeah, it's rare to get them in the same room. Um, I wish we could do it more, um, but with everyone having, um, you know, different lives and with the way their families run and stuff like that, it's rare. We meet at least once a year. We'll do something social with significant others. Uh, and then I have a Zoom call uh, with all of them once a month. It lasts about an hour, um, more of a calibration type meeting. Um, you know, this is where we're at. This is where we need to go. Some system changes. You know, if we're gonna um, if we're gonna pivot on a philosophy or a strategy, I want them knowing about it uh, before anyone else, and I usually um, share that with them on our monthly Zoom call. But uh, I I do wish that I had the opportunity to to be with them in the same room uh, more often, but logistically, it's just been been very difficult to make happen. Yeah, yeah, we're everybody has personal lives, and and we. We want the business to be a primary focus, but not the sole focus of of our people. I mean, everybody needs a little bit of balance. I, you know, you and I were uh, we were having a, a quick conversation when we were in San Antonio recently uh, about the the concept of of doctor development and you know onboarding and mentorship and some things like that. And I wonder if we couldn't spend just a few minutes, uh, you know, learning a little bit more from you. Um, on how you approach that and kind of what you've seen that's worked for y'all and maybe even some things that haven't. And the reason I ask this question is because I, I still think it's something that far too many people who are building group practices um, either leave unaddressed or they leave to chance. And, and that has created uh, I'll just say some problems in, in some businesses that we've seen. Um, and I think that, uh, it's something that when done right, uh, really can be a great catalyst for, for growth for the individual. It creates stability uh, within the organization, and ultimately, it, it creates better patient outcomes. And I think that's what we're all striving for. So I wonder if you could maybe like, you could even take it from the recruiting trail if you want, but talk about maybe the type of candidates you're looking for when it comes to onboarding them. How do you get them comfortable in the business? And then maybe along the lines of doctor development, what that kind of looks like for you all too. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll try my best to break that down. And your point is, is such a good one that, and I can't speak for other groups, um, but the success of our group is, is very much focused on, the recruitment, the retention, the happiness, the development of our uh, associate doctors, and um, we can we can talk about this later in the interview. But the the RSU program that you helped me uh, implement has been um, a very important strategic anchor with uh, us retaining our um, our associates. But 
we do have an avatar for a prospective associate. It's ideally um, someone that's a couple of years out of school, but not too, too experienced. Um, we have had some failures with hiring more experienced docs that um, are kind of set in their ways. So our avatar is someone could be right out of school. And in New York, there's a mandatory general practice residency to maintain licensing, which um, I don't agree with from a personal perspective, but as a business owner, it's nice getting these doctors to have an, a year of uh, a GPR experience under their belt. And then, you know, I joke with uh, a lot of the doctors that I coach where they have this mindset that I coach outside of the organization that I coach across the country. And it's funny because they'll say to me, you know, I just hired an associate dentist. Thank God, because now I get a chance to, you know, take my foot off the gas and get, you know, relax a little bit. <laughs> and you could tell it's their first or second associate. Yeah. Because the reality is, you know, buckle up because you just signed up for at least a part-time, an additional part-time job, probably an additional full-time job, because you need to pour into these docs um, over at least the first 90 days, uh, you know, more realistically over the first year, if there's any expectation of them to get calibrated with your culture, your values, um, your systems, your clinical systems. Um, so, so yeah, we have a pretty, pretty black and white process. Uh, we, we call it the onboarding process. We use what's called a guidebook. It's, it's laid out pretty darn well. Um, and the, the, the associate doc basically knows what they're going to be doing pretty much every day over those first 90 days. Um, even before they join us, uh, they know what, what books I expect them to read. They know what level of magnification I expect them to have. Um, there's, there's really no, uh, ambiguity with what the expectations are. And when we went to that particular model, we had found that, um, there was much more success with the retention and the growth of these associates. And I, and I think I heard you say it on a podcast maybe three, four years ago where, you know, these docs want to know what the playbook is. Like they, it's not, it's not a situation where they come out of school and they're like, well, let's brainstorm what we should do next. Like they, they want to know um, what am I doing on day one? What am I doing on day two? What am I doing on day three? And if you don't have that laid out, then they really don't know if they're winning or not. And uh, since we've moved to that model of not micromanaging these docs by any stretch, but 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 by creating clarity with what's going to be expected of them, you know, the first week, second week, third week, with constant check-ins, minute meetings, day end of day check-ins, weekly one-on-ones, monthly one-on-ones, um, we've found that that recipe, that formula, leads to some pretty good success. Yeah, I, it's great to hear you say that, and I knew that, uh, what a great job y'all were doing with it, which is really why I asked the question. I, I think I think you're right. I th when I say that people leave too much to chance, they're just not thinking about the context of the arrangement from the associate's standpoint, uh, from any new employee standpoint for that matter. And I think betting into the culture, feeling like you fit there is is really important, but also understanding with clarity what the the owners or the organization's expectations of that associate are and how, you know, how they can thrive in that environment. And, you know, the, the, 
ability to access a mentor to accelerate their learning curve and get them comfortable. And they're, you know, you mentioned two years out of school. They're not too far out of school to be away from what I call the academic environment, you know, the the semester trimester type of a cadence and a schedule with all of it. And I think people find comfort in that type of routine. And when they can see what that pathway to success looks like, they're more apt to follow it. And, and it also you know, candidly, I think it helps differentiate an emerging group on the recruiting trail, because if an associate has multiple options in terms of finding their next job or their next role, they're going to go where they feel most comfortable, where they can see their future developing in front of them. And if they are able to execute on that, they're also going to make more money doing it. And, and I think that's good all the way around. It's a very holistic approach and and y'all are are excellent at it so thank you for for that level of insight um you did mention the uh associate equity model that we worked on a couple of years ago that has been i think y'all have had it in place like four or five years now maybe if i missed my guess about that, like yeah that. About that. yeah yeah so um it, you know let's maybe just take a, a second and talk a little bit about that because um I, I it's one of those cornerstone pieces for um well groups of all sizes but i think especially emerging groups to help um you know differentiate themselves in the recruiting trail like i mentioned before it is a point of differentiation um and also the the retention or the minimizing of turnover of associates for those that are high performers. You're always going to have some level of turnover, be it the people you ask to leave or those that are, um, you know, leave on their own uh, volition. But it's the the high performers that we want to make sure we're taking care of, that we value their clinical skills and usually their their personal level of input uh, on the business too. So do you want to maybe talk through the early stages of that and then how it's played out for you over uh, over an extended period of time? Yeah. So I just think it's unfair with this newer generation of dentists to expect them to do what we did 20, 25 years ago. And and again, there's going to be these type A alphas that no matter what level of debt that they have, they're going to open up their own practice or, or buy a practice and just run it. But as, as you well know, and your audience knows, that's now becoming the minority. So then the question is, how do we strategically offer um, some level of equity to younger dentists um, without taking on the huge burden of all of this debt in starting a practice or purchasing a practice. And, and I think you and DeWalker did a phenomenal job on developing a system that checks a lot of those boxes. So um, from a recruiting perspective, when I can tell um, a doc that I, I would love to come join us that, you know, stay with us uh, a year and we'll then be able to make you a minority partner through this RSU model, uh, you know, their their ears perk up and um, and they they find a lot of value in the in the possibility of becoming a, a minority partner in a situation without having to dole out a lump sum of cash um, to do so. Now, th there's advantages and disadvantages to all of these programs. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of these younger docs say they want equity they want to see the word partner on their business card but 
they don't really want to take on all of the crazy amounts of behind the scenes leadership responsibilities that are in fact associated with owning a practice. So it does it does check a lot of boxes where they can become a partner, they can have equity, they can have a voice in the organization. But if they truly want to turn it off at five o'clock, um, they can do that. At least, at least that's how it works in our organization. And there's a little bit of a golden handcuff um, phenomenon associated with it, where assuming that you're keeping your doctors busy and assuming that you have the right support team in place for your doctors, um, you know, it could be expensive for them to leave the organization and go somewhere else because they have uh, developed a certain amount of equity in the organization via the RSU model. Yeah, I, I think they are at a, you know, at their early stages of their career, they they find themselves at a crossroads, whether they're uh, aware of it or not. And dentistry still lends itself to being, you know, uh, um, uh, an entrepreneur-driven piece of the healthcare services world. And I think that's the great thing about it. Um, and I think in groups like yours, you know, to your point earlier, they're good grief. So many of them are carrying such large loads of, of student loan debt. And then if they start a family or buy a house or buy a car or something, you know, it's just like debt on top of debt. And, you know, the, the ability to pull the trigger and have the confidence to say, I want to own my own business outright. It's just justifiably fewer and fewer that are kind of falling in that camp. And when you have a an earned equity model in a growing group such as yours, it, it really can be the rising tide that lifts all boats. And and I, I like to say that I, you know, even though we all throw around the phrase win-win solution more often than it's warranted. Um, this is truly one of those aspects of life that can be massively beneficial to the associate and can be massively beneficial to the founder uh, when executed correctly. And, and you all have done uh, all of the above on that. I, I wonder, you know, if you could maybe just give a little bit of insight without, you know, any degree of specificity or, or confident, confidentiality here, but like for your associates that are in the program uh, and maybe some of them have come in at different, you know, stages of the of the business life cycle itself. But what have you seen in terms of um, uh, not just their initial excitement about the program and the merits of it, but also like a, a change in behavior or productivity or you know a little bit level different level of commitment or anything like that 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 might be um, the catalyst to helping you grow the business? And any anything you can share as it relates to that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think in theory, what you're asking um, is true, right? So, the, you know, there's a specific um, revenue hurdle that the associate is meant to to hit, and then everything above and beyond that hurdle um, turns in a percentage of that turns into equity for the doctor. So in in theory, um, because uh, associate wants to earn as much equity as they can year over year, then they're going to um, try their best to learn new clinical skills, help their case acceptance, learn how to communicate with patients better, all in an effort to generate more revenue, which ultimately turns into more equity. And there's there's no question that that is the backbone of the model. Um, that being said, I think if you're vetting prospective 
partners correctly, then you're going to find that to be the case anyways. At least that's been my experience. So, uh, you know, we have turned down some prospective associates, um, or I should say prospective partners, current associates that wanted to become partners because we just didn't feel like they embodied what we wanted out of a partner. Um, now, I could be wrong and I maybe I could have made them partners and all of a sudden they get motivated, but I didn't want this model to be the carrot to um, hope motivation occurs. I wanted to offer this to motivated associates. So I hope I hope that makes sense. But um, I found out of the, I believe we have five minority partners now, um, that they were going to continue to become clinically excellent and proficient um, no matter what, because they have that value system internally. I just have the peace of mind knowing that they're doing it in our organization as opposed to someone else's. So I really think that's where um, the model shines is these doctors could have tried to do it on their own or could have tried to do it in a different situation. But by me offering them an opportunity to um, excel, like I knew they would excel already, but but reward them within our organization, um, it is truly, you know, the, not to, to create another cliche, but it is truly a win-win situation. Yeah, no, that's that's very well said. And, and you're very, again, very disciplined about the way you, you think about those types of things relative to partnership and, and the capabilities of, of your associates. And that's, you know, honestly, that's the way we we love to hear the model playing out. That's the intention behind all of it and, and why it's um, usually very successful also in a, in a corporate setting. I don't mean corporate dentistry necessarily. I mean like a corporate America type uh, setting. And that was the, the whole premise behind it when DeWalker and I reverse engineered the, the model for this application. So it's, it's great to see it thriving in, in your instance and so many others and and um you know the you like it when good guys finish first as i like to say but also you know the the aspect that the associates are kind of realizing their own destiny and their own outcome and that's that's kind of cool to see from afar too so um let's let's maybe shift gears a little bit um and talk about growth strategy for you and and for our audience um can you maybe just talk a little bit about how you've grown uh, the the business from a location standpoint, de novo versus acquisition, and then maybe some of the uh, challenges you've incurred along the way, uh, and, and also the successes you've created. Yeah, as far as describing the challenges, um, we'd have to make this like a six part. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Uh, so we're we're more more of a de novo um, organization. We have we have acquired one practice, um, and and it was it's been successful. Um, it it created a set of challenges that I wasn't anticipating, um, but you know what doesn't kill you make you stronger. But for the most part, we are de novo strategy. Uh, we have a de novo growth strategy, and you know it used to be ten years ago. Um, how many locations do you have? You know, you sit around at the bar and you're like, well, I have six locations. I have eight locations. You hold out your chest 
And then even 10 years before that, it was how many weeks are you booked out, right? Well, I'm booked out 12 weeks or I'm booked out, you know, a year. And, and it just, it, you kind of laugh about it. And and I've, I've pivoted a little bit on the number of location argument. You know, I, it, it's from my perspective, it's all about revenue and it's all about EBITDA. And, and the, I have the philosophy now that how do I maximize revenue and maximize EBITDA with, with the, as few number of locations as possible. So, and that's actually the mindset that we've kind of taken over the last couple of years uh, to the point where we're adding operatories to current locations so they can become uh, two to three doctor offices as opposed to one doctor offices, um, considering, you know, five days a week in a particular office versus four. Um, you know, and I think you've said this uh, before, and maybe I got it from you, maybe I got it from someone else, but it, it's just so much more beneficial to create EBITDA that way versus purchasing it, right? And um, that's kind of what keeps me up at night. I have deep work blocks throughout the week where how do I figure out ways to become more efficient and create EBITDA in the same footprint as opposed to um, purchasing it through a uh, through an acquisition? So that's our that's our growth strategy. Because I'm an engineer and I'm a and a data freak by by nature, I had to. I had to somehow tie um, goals, uh, financial goals to our growth. So we've decided that we're trying to grow 20% year over year, um, our, our top line revenue. Um, and that number is a number that stretches us, but it doesn't um, allow the culture or the quality to care um, to, to come unraveled. And I've told my team, at every quarterly meeting that we have together, that as soon as I feel the culture or the quality of care is starting to suffer, then then we'll pivot on our growth strategy because it's just it's not that important to me to be quite honest. Um, but that's that's what we outlined a few years ago, and um, we're we've been blessed enough to hit those uh, growth marks over the last three four years. Man, that's uh, that's great to hear, and and unbelievable words of wisdom for the audience because I do think that. There are too many people um, that are that attend the same DSO conferences in a different Marriott ballroom every other weekend in a different uh, different city, uh, and they see the same people and they like to thump their chests about the things that uh, are, are a little bit fool's gold. And one of those is chasing locations. And unfortunately, I was having this conversation with. Uh, uh, a CEO of a regional DSO, one among many that I, I know fairly well. And and we were talking about the difference in aggregators versus operators. And um, the, the thought being that, hey, when money's cheap and um, everybody's chasing locations, uh, we're all going to make money on the flip, on the recap, and you can afford to you know, overpay for acquisitions as long as you can just keep, you know, chase or shooting fish in a barrel, so to speak. And then all of a sudden the the lending environment changes and the economic environment starts to change a little bit. And and now those people that were relying on pure play aggregation at low acquisition uh uh Debt, debt rates um, that thought they were building great businesses. Now those businesses look a little different. And the people like yourself who are, again, I'll use the word disciplined in their growth strategy, be it acquisition or usually de novo, and understand how to be an operator 
are the the people who are really building immense value in their business and they're doing it without adding a lot of fixed cost to it. And I think that's really the the brilliance of what you're talking about. And I'm sure you sleep better at night from a, a standpoint of uh, feeling that you have a greater degree of control over the business. And that's uh, an aspect of, of growing a group practice that's hard to put a number on. But you know, when you have that confidence and that, for lack of a better term, comfort um, uh, versus versus when you're left to wander and stay up late at night. So kudos to you. I think that I, I think you're corroborating the thought process around me saying so often that, you know, DeWalker and I are huge fans of the DeNovo strategy. And I think what you're talking about is, is further credence to that. So thank you for, for sharing a little insight in, into that. So let's, you know, maybe talk a little bit about where you are at your point in your journey, Jason. And, and, you know, as dumb a question as this may sound, how do you feel about the business you built so far and, and kind of your, um, you know, the, the, the outlook for the future. I mean, you're, you're nowhere near hanging it up or retirement. I mean, you're, you've got a, unless you wanted to be obviously, but I feel like you've got a, a long way to go. How do you, how do you feel about the business you built and how do you on an internal perspective, kind of keep yourself motivated for that next phase and moving through that next inflection point for you? Yeah, super good question. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the answer almost changes on a daily basis, depending on what fire I'm putting out or, or what have you. But um, I mean, I, I love what I do. And and I've pivoted so much over the last 10 years in growing this thing where um, just trying to, to focus in on what I really enjoy doing um, and delegating and 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 leveling up other people around me to do the things that I'm not that good at or that I don't do, that I don't enjoy anymore. Um, and more recently, it's been just developing leadership and developing my leadership team and my team leads and just trying to, you know, leadership is such a ambiguous um, philosophy or topic or thought process. And, and I hate that. I hate ambiguity. I hate subjectivity. So just trying to develop a system where I can uh, be very objective about what leadership is and how I want it to play out in our organization. Um, I spend a lot of time with my leaders doing that. And I've found, and this is this is obviously in theory, but I found it to be true that you know if you can develop enough leaders and you make sure that each of those leaders has teams that don't get over say six to eight people in theory you can scale this thing pretty good and uh and be able to control the culture and the quality and so as long as i can continue to do that um i will now you know there are i kind of joked early on there are days where i wake up and i'm like you know what? i'm just gonna sell this thing it's not worth it anymore. but those, <laughs> those days are uh they're few and far between um be, knowing that I can grow my leaders and, and my doctors, that's what gets me out of bed. And, and you know, is there going to be a, a windfall in the next decade or so? I mean, obviously, that's a possibility. But the reality is, I want to build a legacy business, I want to be able to hand this off um, to my daughter, and we're set up in a way um, where my daughters or my sons could could come in and 
and you know non-clinicians and and help me run it and work side by side uh them and and really see what's what's possible so that's that's kind of my thought process um you know lots of lots of minority partners lots of family helping me run this thing and and just you know building building a legacy and um that's what that's what i feel i was put on this earth to do and that's what i'm trying to do uh, very, very cool. Very gratifying to hear. Um, and I, you know, I, I love catching up with you. I love talking with you. I love spending time and hearing your story. Uh, I was going to, I was about to say, unfortunately, I shouldn't preface it by saying, unfortunately, but I'll, I'll say DeWalker had the pleasure of working with you in more of a consulting capacity versus me. And aside from him probably yelling at you every other week about everything you're doing wrong, what what would you how, how would you tell our audience that relationship was uh, uh, working with DeWalker and, and some of the value he might have brought to, to you and the growing business at that point? Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, we kind of joked at the beginning of the podcast that I listened to you at at one and a half speed. Whenever I'm with DeWalker and even in person, I wish I could slow him down to like <laughs> 0.5x, right? <laughs> I'm like, whoa, 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 what did you just say? Well, like, yeah. well, slow down here. Um, yeah, I mean, he. I, I think what my relationship with DeWalker was, it is awesome, right? And he, he filled so many gaps and made me aware of so many blind spots um not only in the moment but what he knew was going to be a blind spot for me in six months in a year and just you know forced me to understand concepts that in the moment i was like why why do i care about this like why why am I even worried about this right now, DeWalker? I'm trying to get my hygienist to show up for work <laughs> and you're telling me about arbitrage. And I'm like, and uh you know, in retrospect, you know, it was, it was exactly what I needed at that time. And, um, and he's a great teacher with an unbelievable amount of wisdom. Um, so it, it was, it was a blessing and it definitely got me, uh, pointed in the right direction, got my leadership team pointed in the right direction. And I think the philosophy was spot on where, and I, I don't know if you're telling prospective clients this anymore, parent. And if you're not, then I'm, you can edit this out. But, <laughs> um, but the thought process was like, look, we don't want to work with you forever. Like we want to, we want to consult with you for 12 to 18 months and then let you run. And, uh, I never really believed that to be true. But when we got to that point after 12, 15 months and DeWalker was like, all right, I'm done with you. Like you can do this on your own. Now it was like, yeah, like I can do it on my own. And uh, it was it, it was it was hard to kind of rip that bandaid off and let the security blanket go. But I totally understand what the perspective was at that time. And I'm glad that that was the mindset because uh, he did set us up for um, a tremendous amount of future success. No, that's uh, that's good to hear. And that is kind of a uh, I think a differentiator for us um, uh, versus other would-be competitors, I'll, I'll say. I mean, I, I think um, consultants get branded with a lot of different, you know, uh, uh, adjectives or painted with a variety of brushes. And and I do know quite a few that 
that view client relationships as nothing more than a gravy train. And and our our mo and working with somebody is to to accelerate them through whatever phase they're in, get them to a point of stability where they do feel like that they're confident to take that next step and and you know have the the confidence to lead the business into the next phase of growth. And and um, I think that's a little bit different about the way we tend to operate versus some and and you know your the relationship we have and that he has specifically with you is testament of that not just while engaged but also after the fact and and that's super cool to see too so um very very rewarding and very fulfilling from us from from our standpoint too um so jason let's maybe put a bow on our conversation today and and for the audience you know uh, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of people in the audience that are still in the early phases of even deciding to to add a second or a third location, you know, um, let alone executing on it. And if you could think back on your years of experience, and I think you said it, you, you were at one location for like ten to twelve years, and then your growth has been fairly prolific thereafter, especially considering COVID and everything. But um. You know, what's maybe one piece of advice you'd share if you, if you could talk to yourself way back in the day or, or anybody else that's in the audience that was at the stage where you were, you know, um, uh, in those first uh, in that first decade? Yeah, it's a super good question, Perrin. Um, I think from my own perspective and in, in doing the, the amount of coaching that I do um, with Dennis across the country, um, Scaling a, a, a group, going to, to multiple locations or multiple providers, like it's exciting, it's fun, but man, you got to have clarity on what you really want to do with your life. And don't just do it because, you know, the guy down the street's doing it, or you went to a conference and a bunch of people are doing it because I've seen firsthand how it can go sideways really quick. So I love the fact that I did it. I love the fact that I partnered with you guys early on and you helped me avoid um, some of the landmines that um, other people stepped in. But most importantly, like really have clarity with what you're trying to accomplish in your life. And it's got to be beyond money because I know a lot of people that work out of one location um, four days a week and 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 they're making a ton of money, right? But if if the vision is, man, I want to serve more people, I want to create something that's going to, you know, be a testament to what I was capable of on this earth, then um, then I think the group practice model is something that they should consider. Um, but just do it with the right advocates, do it with the right advisors, um, make sure that you're Make sure that your house is is buttoned up. Your first location is buttoned up pretty pretty darn tight before you um, try to replicate the the recipe. That's uh, those are words of wisdom that uh, I wish we could uh, tattoo on everyone as they're starting out this journey because I think um, those that do it for I'll just come out and say maybe the wrong reasons um, are uh, are those that usually meet with disillusionment, and um, it doesn't have to be that way. Dentistry is a wonderful, wonderful profession. From a business model standpoint, my gosh, from a blend of fixed costs and variable costs, there are not many better 
uh, businesses, especially with the barriers to entry that y'all have. And it can just be a, a very rewarding and gratifying profession. And, and we're, we're blessed to play a small role in it. And we're obviously blessed to have friends and, and former clients such as yourself um, that we get to have these conversations with. So Jason Tenuri, thank you so much uh, for your time this afternoon. Uh, you're a busy guy and taking an hour out of your day to, to spend with me. I'm grateful for it. And I know our audience is better off for it. So thanks so much for being on with me today. No, you're very welcome. I appreciate the time. You bet. You bet. We'll have you back next week and we'll do it at like a 2x the speed <laughs> or whatever it may be. And you never know. Maybe we'll uh, we'll do one of these on uh, video and I'll have DeWalker use the whiteboard on Zoom or something like that and confuse the hell out of everybody. So I'm starting to have nightmares again. <laughs> that's that's the PTSD coming back uh, when, when you put a marker in his hand. <laughs> oh, oh, Lordy. Jason Tenuri, founder of Finger Lakes Dental Care. Uh, you are a a, a true uh, blessing to us and and can't thank you enough this has been uh, very much fun for me and a great way to to end up my week so thank you so much for your time effort and being with us thank you for being a supporter and thanks to everybody else for being in the audience and being um, such a great follower of ours too stick around for some additional thoughts and i'll be right back to wrap up the show Well, sincere thanks to Dr. Jason Tanuri for joining me on the show today. He is a a great friend of the Polaris family, I'll say, and and a huge supporter of ours, an all around great guy, and has has really built and is building a tremendous business in the Finger Lakes area, and is really doing it the right way uh, with a lot of intentionality. I think that's a a model business that we would love to see more and more people replicate, um, uh, frankly. And and I think he's somebody who can share just a lot of experience, a lot of words and wisdom, and he's so kind for doing that. So really appreciate him joining me on the show today. As we uh, wrap up today's show, you know, we've hit a lot on um, the uh, associate equity partnership pathways topic and concept, uh, both with Mark Flock as well as with a handful of people um, that I, I brought on the personal journeys segment of these um, uh, shows. And obviously, we do a lot around partnerships. And and I think it it is the largest problem in all of group practices, associate turnover, attracting the right associates, onboarding them, motivating them, and then retaining them for the long haul. And as I've said on numerous occasions, that retention piece is really, honestly, it's just better solved with an ownership track in place versus trying to do it off of pure play compensation. Uh, and, and we're big believers in that. And I think you've heard a lot of people say that. So if you're if you are in the process of building a group practice, or if you're on the initial phases of the journey, I, I think you owe it to yourself to um, you know, when you're thinking out ahead, at least build, intend to build a group with minority partners. How you do that is ultimately one of a number of different ways. There's not only one way to do it. There's multiple different ways and there's the right tool in the toolbox to do it. But this is a, a piece of the business that is every bit as important as executing a growth strategy to expand the footprint by either buying or building additional locations. Um, if you don't have the right application for bringing associates into the ownership uh, context of the business, uh, you're just spinning your wheels. So 
what the right solution is for you, I'm not sure, but you owe it to yourself to get educated on the options at your disposal and then seeing how those options complement the vision for the business that you're building. And, and that's an exploratory type of a process. So if you're interested in learning more about that, obviously one of the best vehicles uh, and opportunities to do that is going to be uh, at our Scaling from Clinician to CEO conference that we're hosting with Dr. Mark Costas and the group from the Dental Success Institute. That is October 11th through 13th in lovely Scottsdale, Arizona at the Phoenician. And there are going to be several different components uh, in that Thursday, Friday session to talk about associates in a lot of different contexts. Dr. Mark Costas, for one, uh, is going to discuss specifically what I call building your economic engine. It's the doctor development plan. Um, and he's also going to talk about how to, to replicate culture in multiple different locations. And those are two critical components uh, to, to having a successful uh, associate strategy. We've got two different law firms that are going to be talking on legal structures and partnerships specifically. That's Jonathan Escal from the Escal Law Group uh, is going to be covering the um, legal structure piece of the uh, presentation on Thursday. And then Sarah Stock and Sam Wallach from Stock Legal in St. Louis are going to be covering partnerships, uh, specifically uh, associate equity and earned equity structures around profits, interest, and restricted stock or restricted membership unit structures. And they've done a ton of those. And then we're going to bring uh, Sarah, Sam, and Jonathan together in a light panel. I, I hate the word panel, but it's really going to be more of a discussion around, from a legal perspective at least, where partnerships fail. We talk about the, the success and building associate equity models and outcomes and all that, but where do these things unravel and where do they come apart? You know, be it for two co-founding partners uh, or on an associate equity context. So there's going to be a lot both um, structurally in terms of development, structurally in terms of legal structure, uh, structurally in terms of the difference, how you compare and contrast, um, you know, buy-ins versus earn-ins profits, interest versus restricted stock. If you really want to learn more about the associate equity solutions in their entirety and then take a breather on what could be the right solution for the business you're, that you're intending to build, this conference is going to have all of that under one roof in a matter of less than two days. So I think you owe it to yourself uh, to, to spend some time, join us out in Scottsdale, October in Scottsdale's pretty epic time of the year. And the Phoenician is a beautiful resort. So I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. You'll have a good time. And as, as if you're a follower of ours, you know, it's going to be a deep dive into all of that subject matter. So um, there'll be a link in the show notes on registration, how to get registered. There are obviously seats available. We do expect the conference to sell out and I hope you'll consider joining us. I sincerely thank you for being on the show with me and being a follower of ours. Um, we love the podcast. We love that you're in the audience. We love that you share the podcast with so many of your friends and colleagues. And I see that in the, the downloads on a daily basis. I can tell when somebody has, uh, I'll say, discovered our show. And usually they discover our show uh, by being um, 
referred to it by a colleague or a follower of ours. And it's kind of cool when I look at the daily downloads and there's some random day of the week, like a, a Friday or a Sunday or something, you know, when, when we haven't released a new episode and then I see us hit a new daily record like we did last week um, uh, for the show. I, I know that somebody turned a friend on, the friend liked what they heard, and then the friend went back and downloaded all hundred and some odd episodes and uh and are going to listen to them hopefully in very short order so thank you for uh for being such a big advocate of the show thank you for sharing it thank you for being in the audience uh and being such a loyal supporter of ours really appreciate all of your time and effort and everything you do for us and we'll certainly see you on the next episode <laughs>